Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Renata Blumberg, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lindsay Naylor about her new book, Fair Trade Rebels, Coffee Production and Struggles for Autonomy in Chiapas. Lindsay Naylor is an associate professor in the Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences at the University of Delaware. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Renata. I'm really happy to be here. A pleasure to have you. So I'd like to begin the interview by asking you to tell us about yourself. That is your academic trajectory, how you ended up studying geography, and how you became interested in fair trade specifically. Yeah, uh, great. I always love talking about my path to geography because, uh, as I often say, it was a meandering one. Uh, I started off uh, as an undergraduate student at Western Washington University in beautiful Bellingham, Washington, uh, as a political scientist undergraduate student. Uh, I declared my major within the week of my first year and knew that I was going to be a lawyer. I was absolutely positive that was my career trajectory. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then I took a class with uh, Damani Johnson on international development. And my entire career trajectory changed. It was one of those light bulb moments that you have as an undergraduate student. And I decided to pursue a degree in international development and international law. So I tried to marry my interests and uh, pursued a graduate degree, a master's degree at the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. And I started uh, as an enrolled MAJD student. So I took my LSATs. I was prepared. I was going to be in school for a very long time at a very expensive rate. And I took my first couple of uh, master's classes and I never took a law class. I I abandoned that uh, because I was so interested in what I was learning about international development and uh, decided I wanted to be an international development practitioner, which is what I did uh, when I graduated and I worked for a small for-profit international development firm uh, doing all of the things that I thought were bad about development. (laughs) And uh, Where were you? uh, The the firm doesn't exist anymore, but I was in Washington, D.C. in a small firm called Citizens International and working on uh, indefinite quantity contracts, having partnerships with USAID. Uh, we worked with the Jane Goodall Foundation. Uh, we worked with uh, different other for-profit companies doing rapid role appraisal. Uh, did a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa. And it was all really interesting to watch as a practitioner, but I felt that uh, we were still falling into a lot of the traps that I saw uh, when I was a student studying uh, international development. And I realized that I wasn't ready to stop asking questions about this and critiquing this. 
And I realized I wanted to teach and be in the classroom. And so I decided to pursue a PhD. And I started looking for international development programs. And one thing that I will say, and this is uh, not maybe the best way to pick a PhD program, but uh, I'm in a, in a partnership where my partner is not an academic and uh, my partner wanted to pursue a degree as well. And so I started researching PhD programs where uh, my partner was going to be. And so I only applied to, to programs uh, in Oregon. And that was only after uh, some very helpful advice from a friend who was finishing up a degree in GIS saying, you're asking the same questions as geographers. You should apply for a geography degree. I had never taken a geography class in my entire life. Wow. Uh, and my first geography class was in preparation for my PhD. Uh, so yeah, I only applied to programs in Oregon because my husband makes beer for a living and that's where the beer scene was at the time. And thankfully, uh, the University of Oregon uh, said, hey, this is, this is interesting. Uh, and I pursued the research that I actually wrote about in my application. Uh, hmm. So that's how I got to geography. Uh, I consider myself a feminist political geographer. Uh, so I did marry a little bit of my political education with uh, my geography education. Uh, and I'm a, I, I'm a fierce critic of development. And I think that comes out uh, in the book that we're here to talk about today. Hmm. So you didn't look at political science programs or? No, nope, I didn't. Uh, I was looking for international development uh, like programs, but they're just not, at least at the time, and this was back in uh, the early 2000s, uh, there just wasn't a concentration of them on the West Coast. And there really wasn't a concentration of the craft beer industry on the East Coast. And now that's completely changed. Uh, but uh, no, it just wasn't, I wasn't finding anything. And I just happened to be out for beers uh, with my friend, Andy Freed, who was finishing up a degree at Portland State University. He's like, you should pursue geography. And he was right. I found my home. Mm. So uh, what about the, um, the geographical area of research? Had you, uh, were, did you ever travel to Chiapas or? No. So I had never been to Chiapas until I decided to, to write a dissertation uh, based in that place. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on uh, the differences between modernization and uh, development. And I used the Zapatistas as a case study. And so I was still uh, very interested in how uh, a resistance movement uh, was resisting neoliberal capitalism and its efforts to destabilize their way of life. And that uh, is really what brought me to Chiapas. But uh, yeah, I wrote my undergraduate uh, thesis on on a, a similar topic uh, back in 1990. No, no, 2000. <laughs> I started college in 1998. <laughs> so um, I think this is a good time to start talking about the book itself. Uh, to start, I was wondering if you could describe the socio-spatial context of fair trade coffee production in Chiapas and provide us with an overview of the theoretical approach you use to study this topic. Yeah, so it's two big things. I'll try to be succinct. Uh, although, as I mentioned before we started, I don't give short answers. Uh, so the important thing to know about Chiapas is that it is, uh, well, there's a very sort of fraught land history there. And I get into it more in the book and I'm not gonna get into it deeply here, uh, but it is a, uh, it is a state that is populated largely by indigenous people. And uh, most of those indigenous people are seeking a subsistence way of life and have uh, attachment to the land and have been seeking access to land and resources for a very long time. Uh, and so the struggle for land is ongoing. Uh, the context for coffee production and fair trade coffee production uh, are not, uh, 
too dissimilar. Uh, the coffee production landscape is fraught. It's very political. Uh, back in the 80s, when the international coffee agreement still existed, there was a lot of state support for coffee production. Uh, and so there was a uh, state buyer. So there was a guaranteed buyer for all coffee. And when the international coffee agreement collapsed in the late 80s, uh, that uh, state buyer disappeared within a few years. And so people needed to start making international connections on their own. Uh, and so cooperatives, uh, you know, cooperatives predate uh, fair trade in Mexico. They're, they were very common, uh, both for conventional and organic production. Uh, and so people have been working together uh, to make sure that their coffee can get to market for a very long time. The introduction of fair trade into the region uh, really came uh, not on the heels of the Zapatista Rebellion, but certainly was heightened after the Zapatista Rebellion. Uh, there's a long history in, uh, in Latin America where coffee trade is used as an act of solidarity. A lot of times uh, in Central America in particular, uh, folks from the United States and Europe would purchase coffee, uh, travel to Central America or Mexico and meet with coffee growers uh, to make sure they had a market for their coffee and really politically, uh, violent situations to make sure these people still had access to market. And the same is true in Chiapas. Uh, and so the cooperatives that I worked with and the roasters who I worked with, the roasters, uh, they, they exist because of the conflict in Chiapas. So both of the roasters who buy coffee from the cooperatives that I worked with in this research, uh, they went to, to Chiapas after the rebellion uh, to assist in the peace process and to assist with uh, protecting people who were trying to get into their fields. And Can you tell us a little bit about the rebellion for the people? Yeah, who don't know? oh, sure. Uh, so uh, it's interesting. It used to be the case that when I talked about the Zapatistas, everybody in the room knew what I was talking about. And as we get further and further away from 1994, the more I have to explain it. So thanks for catching me up on that. Uh, so in 1994, uh, after years and years and years, uh, like decades of clandestine organizing uh, since the late 70s, a group uh, called the Zapatista Army of National Liberation uh, took, over, took over town seats on January 1st, 1994, uh, wearing masks and being unarmed. And so it was a violent uh, insurrection uh, and a real statement against uh, the way that Mexico is being presented on the international stage. Uh, and January 1st, 1994 is when the North American Free Trade Agreement entered into, uh, uh, it's, it, it started. It was, that was the, the, uh, the moment that it began. And so the protest is tied to the North American Free Trade Agreement, but is really about uh, international capitalism, uh, neoliberal development, and about the constitutional restructuring that had to happen for Mexico to participate. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, but uh, what I find really fascinating about the way that the international agreement was put together was that Mexico had to change its constitution to be more like the United States and Canada in order to participate in this, which I think is really interesting. Uh, and as part of that change, uh, all uh, ability to petition for land and land reform was removed from the constitution which really uh, was very difficult for uh, campesinos and campesinas in Chiapas in particular, who were still waiting for land claims that had been made decades ago to be met. Uh, and so that was kind of the final straw, I think, to some mm -hmm. degree. And uh, it's important to recognize that 
there's a very strong assimilationist uh, motivation in Mexico that uh, sees indigenous people as a problem and not as part of the country. And so as part of the rebellion, it was uh, to some degree a statement, never in Mexico again without us because indigenous voices are usually not hurt. And so it was a very, very loud, like enough is enough was, was what they said. And there was the first um, declaration of the Lacandon jungle and it was their statement, like we are here, we're not going away and we want land. And so the insurrection only lasted for 12 days, uh, but the movement is still very much alive and well. And the two coffee cooperatives that I worked with in the course of this research, uh, one of them was established out of the, the Zapatista movement, and one of them was established by a, uh, a group in solidarity, uh, but that is a peaceful group. Like they were not, did not participate in the uprising, uh, but they had a, a very significant amount of violence uh, visited upon them because of their solidarity with the Zapatistas. And some of that violence uh, was perpetrated by people that are members of other coffee cooperatives. And so they left those coffee cooperatives and started their own. And so the rebellion really fractured the coffee production scene, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, in Chiapas in that uh, these cooperatives uh, were created out of necessity uh, for a, a safer place to be able to, to participate in the coffee market. Mm-hmm. So um, you asked me to talk a little bit about the theoretical framing. I'm not sure if I covered the, the socio-political landscape or the uh, socio-spatial landscape, but one other thing I should mention because you asked me about space is that uh, the cooperatives are made up of people, right? And so, you know, they have hundreds of members and those members have their coffee plots all over the highlands. And sometimes those plots are close and sometimes those plots are far away. And sometimes there are plots of others in between. And so to maintain their fair trade and their organic certification, they have to uh, do a a lot of really exacting standards. And that is made more difficult by the uh, the distance. And it is made more difficult by the fact that there are other coffee cooperative members uh, from other cooperatives who are not maintaining those practices. And who also, um, as as, uh, part of the, the violence that is ongoing, will intentionally harm the crops of the farmers who are participating in these um, these rebel cooperatives, as I call them. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah, uh, so, I mean, I was interested, uh, like the, 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 not conundrum, but the, the question that led me to Chiapas was, how are these rebel movements that are seemingly anti-capitalist, right? They, they were really upset about this international free trade agreement and understood that it was going to fundamentally changed their way of life. And they're absolutely correct about what it did to corn farmers in Mexico. Uh, but here they are harnessing this global market, this fair trade market to maintain themselves. And so that was, that was what brought me to Chiapas. Uh, when I got to Chiapas, I did my field work over three years in three different uh, time periods. And when I got there, I realized that it really wasn't about coffee or about fair trade, but really about the struggle for autonomy and land. And so I started having these different conversations with folks about that. And so, uh, as we talked about uh, a little bit before we we started uh, the podcast, I actually ended up writing about agriculture and autonomy. And fair trade wasn't really the the focus of the work that I did when I was at the University of Oregon. Uh, But I talked to people about fair trade and I had all of this data about 
fair trade. And I started I kind of turned my critical development brain on. I thought, I think, I think this is, I think I should write a book about this. Uh, and so the book is, is more focused on fair trade. Uh, and, and that is in part because I started to think about the way that people were using fair trade and it wasn't as a capitalist strategy. And so I turned to a couple of different theories to help uh, theorize, to, to analyze that. Uh, one is, uh, there's two theories that I thread through the book. One is the diverse economies uh, theorizations, which came from uh, the co-authorial work of uh, J.K. Gibson Graham. And the other is decolonial theory, which uh, I, I attribute largely to Latin American uh, uh, theorists and, and philosophers. And the way that, and, and the book is with the diverse economies and livable world series at, uh, at University of Minnesota Press. So it's fundamentally about uh, thinking through difference in economic activities and economies in plural, which really dovetails nicely with decolonial theory because the way that I'm using that is to think about geopolitics of knowledge production. Whose knowledge counts? Where does it come from? How do we think about these things? And uh, the way that the folks that I was working with in Chiapas are thinking about fair trade might not be the way that uh, consumers, for example, in the United States who are buying fair trade products think about fair trade. And that was really important for me to have come through the book. And so I'm really trying to unpack knowledge as plural and economies, plural, in the book. So that, that's really interesting how you weave those two theories together. Um, as I was uh, telling Lindsay before, um, it's very, um, you know, it's obvious through the book how it holds very well together theoretically. Um, so I really enjoyed that part of the book. Um, but now I'd like to talk a little bit about chapter three, which is where you go really into this uh, discussion of about fair trade. Um, chapter three is entitled Fair Trade Exploitation and Empowerment. Um, can you explain how fair trade produces both exploitation and empowerment? Yeah, and this, I would say this is a theme in my writing beyond the book as well is, I mean, at the heart of it, for fair trade to exist, there has to be somebody being exploited, right? We think about fair trade as this really great thing that's lifting people up, but for it to exist, someone needs to be in poverty. For it to exist, someone needs to be not making a fair wage. Uh, and so it's a very exploitative system that uh, to some degree puts a lot of power in the hands of uh, folks who are outside of the communities that are, are certified. And it's not the communities that are certified, sorry, the cooperatives and, and the people um, who are undertaking certified production. However, uh, what I have seen, and I don't think this is true across fair trade more generally, I think, uh, again, it's very place specific, right, for geographers. Uh, but what I had, what I saw in Chiapas with the groups that I worked with was that they were using fair trade as another tool in their tool set. And it enabled them to create community outside of Chiapas that ended up being very important. And, uh, you know, one of the most important moments in my field work was talking with uh, a Zapatista uh, Campesino, who said, you know, our coffee sells and it uh, sends a message that we're still here, right? So even though I just had to explain the Zapatista rebellion and who the Zapatistas are, and I actually didn't do a very good job of that. They're indigenous Maya people, <laughs> and they come from uh, one of, generally, uh, there's about five different language groups uh, that folks come from in, 
I worked with Sotil and Southall speaking, uh, Maya folks uh, in the cooperatives that I worked with. Uh, and uh, they are fighting 500 years of oppression and exclusion. So that's just, just to add on to what I had said before. Uh, and so because they are fighting this, this war, they're struggling, they are resisting, the production of fair trade coffee is a piece of that. It's just one piece of that. And they have built these relationships with coffee roasting cooperatives in the United States in particular. And those are really important. Uh, so, you know, I talk about how uh, I am able to buy, for example, single origin, single cooperative, Maya Vinique Coffee. Maya Vinique is one of the cooperatives I worked with uh, from Higher Grounds Trading Company. So I can support them um, by buying that coffee and I know where it comes from. And Higher Grounds Trading Company is very clear about this group. They talk about their history uh, and they talk about why they're selling this coffee. Uh, Maya Vinique is the reason why Higher Grounds Trading Company exists. Chris Treater went to Mexico and I realize I'm bleeding a little bit into chapter four now and I apologize for that. Um, but Chris Trito went to Mexico and was like, how can I help you? And this was, this was the way, oh, I'm not supposed to make movement, but I've just shook the entire table. Apologies. That's okay. Uh, you know, he went to Mexico and uh, came back and started a coffee roasting company mm -hmm. uh, so that he could talk about what happened. And this was after, uh, this was after the massacre at Octeal, uh in 1997, which was a very, very, very violent uh, uh, moment. In, in Chiapas uh, that uh, I don't think people have fully healed from. Mm. Uh, but fair trade as a certification strategy is like many other certification strategies. There's lots of third-party certification out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think is particularly interesting about fair trade certification is that there are standards that have to be followed. And so all of the uh, burden is put on the producer, right? Mm. And so in order to maintain that certification, producers have to do all of these different things. And the cooperative itself has to be held to a certain standard as well in terms of business-like behavior. And I'm doing air quotes here mm -hmm. uh, because it's a very kind of white Eurocentric way of thinking about what business is, mm -hmm. which again is where diverse economies theory helps me to unpack, right? Because mm -hmm. the way that they're approaching fair trade is not in that way. And I talk about that uh, a lot. Yeah. Can, can we just step back a bit and, yeah. and just talk about this idea that is implicit in a lot of fair trade um, that we're giving trade, not aid, right? right? And that is supposed to somehow lead to certain outcomes. So like, what is what is your critique uh, of that? I think you have a really, you've laid it out really well here. Like, why should we just not, like, it sounds really good, right? On the surface, right? So what's wrong with that, that whole idea? Well, one of the things that I really struggle with uh, is the idea that we can buy our way to a better world, right? Uh, it's a very capitalist way of thinking our way out of, 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 of uh, problems that we've caused. And uh, and I also just I struggle with the fact that the producer has to, to, to really work very hard to maintain the certification, where all I have to do is walk into the grocery store and grab a bag, and I've, you know, done my good deed. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of problems with the trade, not aid uh, discourse that is embedded in a lot of fair trade literature. I hear it less now, mm -hmm. uh, now that fair trade is more mainstream. Um, but it it is very similar to development programs that use aid uh, and, and really is not distinct in, in any way that I can see. 
Uh, furthermore, a lot of fair trade organizations receive aid themselves mm-hmm. so, uh, from federal governments and from other uh, programming. And so there was a lot of talk about how international development aid doesn't work, right? And that's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, the Washington consensus is fundamentally uh, flawed, right? The idea um, that everybody's going to be on this on this particular you know plane and we're going to take off to to modernity again air quotes uh, is is just it. There's a particular amnesia there about colo- the colonial period and accumulation by dispossession that that mm-hmm. I find really troubling. Uh, and so at the beginning, uh, you know, fair trade. The first fair trade certification was in 1988, and it was a conversation between coffee farmers in Mexico and a Dutch group that wanted to to get help them get their coffee to market. Very similar to other solidarity organizing that was happening in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, and then it's it's just exploded since. And a lot of that was built on this trade, not aid. Like, look, we're helping people get their stuff to market. They're building uh, their business. They're bringing profit into their communities. And then we get this little, you know, extra bit of money so that they can develop their communities, right? And there's a lot of problems with that. These uh, communities are not homogenous, right? Uh, in both in Chiapas and outside. So, you know, there, there are some issues with, with that. Yeah, I, I just think that's like, you kind of, you have a really eloquent critique of, of the, the modernization paradigm that's like implicit in a lot of fair trade um, in, in the chapter. And I think it's, it's important to like, just remember that, um, because it's, it's still, maybe it's not as present as it was before, but it's, it's still there. And, um, I think, you know, a lot of the consumers believe it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it's interesting because as a result of doing this work over the last more than a decade, uh, I'm on, you know, emails and I'm on Twitter and I get all, I see all of the fair trade stuff mm-hmm. and it's incredible the the programming that goes out there to, to consumers to get their buy-in. Uh, and and actually one of the assignments that I assigned in my food justice course is I have students go and look, they go to the grocery store and they look at the different fair trade labels and I ask them to figure out what the difference is. Right? Because they all look the same. And uh, and so it's really interesting. I think I find it very interesting what they come back with and how surprised they are about yeah. the differences. So I'll just like read a quote because I think this is really good. Like it succinctly describes the argument. The trade of certified goods is viewed as a better way toward development, one that maintains the steady march onward to to, quote modernization and high mass consumption. And that's on page 103. And I think that the way you bring in um, diverse economies here, but also kind of the um, decolonial thinking um, helps to kind of deconstruct that um, paradigm. Um, but also it, you don't, um, lose sight of the possibilities that are enabled through these exchanges. So why don't you talk, tell us a little bit about that too, um, the empowerment dimension. Yeah. So, uh, I think that fair trade certification, while the, the discourses that were lifting people out of poverty, like it's a literal quote from, uh, from fair trade international is that it really just enabling them to stand in place, right? Because fair trade is a price floor. And when I was doing my research, uh, the fair trade price was with the New York price. The, the fair trade price uh, just mirrors that until it drops between, uh, drops below the particular price floor that's been set, which has only been raised a couple of times since 1988. Uh, Why is that? Because it's run by people in 
in the United States and Europe. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a quote in my book too. You know, the price of other things is going up, but the price of coffee is not. Uh, it does, it probably will from the consumer end, especially as uh, we see coffee rust uh, continuing to, uh, you know, damage the crop in South America in particular, but it's creeping up through Central America and it's in Mexico now. Uh, and then also just the supply chain uh, disruption that we've seen from COVID as well. Like we're not going to get out of talking about the pandemic in this <laughs> podcast, unfortunately, but uh, supply chains are being are being disrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's see. Uh, yeah. So maybe just an example. So like, so it allows them to, like you said, um, subsist and get that guaranteed price. Yeah. And and to some degree, you know. Uh, like I agree with the assessment of Sarah Lyon, who uh, also works in Mexico, but did work in Guatemala on fair trade coffee, that it has, it has done good. Like it's allowed people to send their children to school. It's allowed people to be able to buy medication. Uh, it's allowed folks to be able to not suffer maybe in the same way that they would have if they were uh, being more firmly entrenched in, in an impoverished state. Uh, but it is not a panacea for coffee farmers. Uh, there is, it is a tropical commodity and it is a primary commodity. And there is, because the, in some, at the same time that fair trade certification was happening, the gourmet coffee market, the luxury coffee market was also expanding. Like Starbucks became a thing in my lifetime. Right. Uh, and I'm not that old. (laughs) And so there's a particular stigma about processing coffee in its country of origin. So all, almost all coffee is processed uh, outside of its country of origin. Uh, it's exported as, uh, well, I'm not going to get into technical details, but it's, it's, been, it's been processed minimally and it's exported and it's roasted uh, generally in the United States, Europe, or Japan. Uh, and, and I'm generalizing. Uh, but that's where the value is added. Like as, as coffee loses weight, it becomes more expensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, like the amount of money, and I'm, I, I promise I will get to the empowering stuff soon because I am a hopeful person, but the amount of money that you might spend on your cup of coffee, like just say you get a bog standard cup of coffee, no latte or any of that, is more than that farmer was paid for a kilo of those beans, right? Uh, however, uh, it has put cash in income in the hands of folks that are, there are not a lot of opportunities to earn cash income. Uh, in, in, in the rural highlands. Uh, and it's allowed them to maintain to some degree. I do, uh, I don't, I do talk about this a little bit in the book, uh, but it has allowed them to maintain subsistence, but it also takes them away from subsistence because of the, the strict standards for fair trade. Uh, but having fair trade or having a coffee cooperative more generally and these connections uh, is allowing them to pursue the way of life that they want to pursue, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that yeah. is what I think is so important because, uh, you know, there might be some people who want something different, but largely uh, the movements, the, the movements, the social movements that I worked with, they are fighting to maintain their indigenous subsistence lifestyle in a way that is dignified. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and that is, that is a huge struggle, but mm-hmm. the production of coffee, the sale of coffee, and to some degree, fair trade certification enable that. And that nicely connects with the chapter five, um, resistance as agricultural practice. 
um, which I thought was particularly interesting. Um, and in that chapter, you, you write about how, like, for example, rather than using income from coffee to increase the scale of production, what the farmers are doing, they're focused on actually creating subsistence economies of self-reliance. And I think that kind of goes, um, relates back to the empowerment dimension. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the again, these movements, both of them, uh, Las Abejas, which I didn't name yet before, but that's the, the social movement that undergirds Maya Vinique and the Zapatistas, at their core were started because of the struggle for land. And land is very scarce in the highlands. Uh, and the ability to be able to produce enough food is not a reality, uh, even with the sale of coffee. Uh, in fact, the sale of coffee enables folks to be able to purchase food uh, when they've run out of their storage. There's a lot of contradictions, I think, built in to, to the lifestyle that, that uh, coffee production allows for because, uh, uh, you know, of all of my, my fieldwork uh, visits, you know, I would constantly see what was prioritized. And so if you need to keep your coffee dry, that's going to be prioritized in terms of storage and you might not be able to store your corn then, right? Uh, so things of that character. Uh, but largely, these movements are using coffee production and the fair trade market so that they can subsist, so that they can grow corn, so they can grow the milpa, which is the corn, beans, and squash. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that they can continue to, to have access to the land. Uh, coffee is a perennial crop. Uh, you plant it and a coffee bush can produce for up to 80 or so years if, if you, it's well maintained. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, in, it takes up land, but it makes possible production of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know that I can say it. <laughs> I, think I wrote a whole chapter about it, but. Uh, maybe, but, maybe you can just provide like, you have like such vivid examples about the like describing these strategies to maintain like secure food resources. Yeah. And just I mean, provide an example of how, how does this actually happen? Yeah. So the cooperatives provide a space of community outside of a physical community, right? So mm-hmm. if you've got, you know, five, 600 members across the highlands and across the state more generally, it enables an information exchange uh, that might not have been possible. And I don't, that's not a fair trade thing. Right, because cooperatives definitely existed in Mexico before fair trade. So I don't want to uh, go go, you know, attaching any significance to fair trade in particular on that. Uh, but it enables them to share seeds and allows them to share share uh, agricultural strategies. I think uh, I talk about the example of sharing neem and uh, as a pest uh, reduction strategy. And that's not neem is a tropical uh, product that cannot be grown in the highlands, and so is traded. Uh, with folks who are in the uh, the lowland and the rainforest areas where it can be grown, and so that network is enabled through the cooperative, and that is a, that is another site of empowerment and another site of trying to protect their corn and their heritage and uh, their ability to subsist. Uh, because there's a lot of pest problems, and uh, a paper that I will probably never write <laughs> uh, is about the just the real awareness and environmental literacy around climate change and how they can see it in their fields. Uh, and so, uh, and also just uh, the fear of genetically modified organisms as well. Uh, but there's a lot of communication exchange around that. And uh, and this is in a place where, you know, 
yeah, people have cell phones, but there's not like Wi-Fi. There's not a Wi-Fi signal. The Mexican government hasn't made those kinds of investments mm-hmm. uh, in these places. Uh, and so that information exchange ultimately ends up being really important. Mm-hmm. And can you just say a little bit about the importance of, uh, for example, corn, growing corn? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so I thought I was having conversations about autonomy. I was definitely having conversations about corn. Uh, corn is, is pretty much synonymous with autonomy in, in these areas because without it, there is no resistance. There is no autonomy. Um, being able to plant the land in the milpa is uh, incredibly important, both culturally, uh, but uh, you know, it's, it's beyond being able to eat. It is a very culturally significant crop. Uh, and uh, it takes on significance or has taken on significance in meaning that's passed down through the generations. Um, so being able to farm the milpa is fundamentally at the heart of what uh, these folks are struggling for. Mm-hmm. And um, fair trade is just one part of that, like very dynamic, like local, but also global economy, right? That they're situated in. Um, yeah. And I think that you do a really good job of like, you know, showing fair the role of fair trade, but also like um, situating in within this broader context where it's maybe not the, you know, the biggest priority for these communities, although it is very important at the same time. So a huge surprise to, uh, I, this is not, this doesn't feature as much in the book, but I have a different paper that I wrote about uh, the surveillance that happens as part of fair trade certification and uh, certifiers and the, the folks that do the audit are very surprised that fair trade isn't the top priority for the people that are certified. It's, it's, Interesting. Hmm. I think that kind of connects with your idea of um, how how we can think of fair trade as fair trade in movement. Mm-hmm. So I think this is um, kind of like your concluding argument um, because you critique fair trade, but you also um, you also show what what it has um, enabled, um, what kind of hope possibilities um, it, it has produced. So can you tell us about that, um, that concept, fair trade in movement? And also, you, you also conclude with the idea of being in common. Like, what, is, what, is, what do those two um, frameworks, concepts mean in this context? Yeah, so, I mean, fair trade in movement is something that I've been thinking through for a few years now because it's, uh, it's not a static thing, right? Like, fair trade is to some degree fixed, but it's not, and it's malleable and it's reconfigured and reappropriated by folks. Uh, and so I was trying to think through that. Uh, I also uh, was thinking about fair trade and movement to, to some degree oppose another one of the major discourses uh, in fair trade uh, writing and uh, sort of the materials, the advertising materials is the idea that it's a movement and a market. Uh, and to try to disrupt that binary, to messy that up a little bit, because uh, it is both and it is neither. Uh, and it's, it's really used by people in different ways that some people might use it as a market, right? And there are some people who definitely were t- talking to me that way, like fair trade is a price, like we want the price to go up, um, that, that's it. But there are other folks who talk about it as, you know, being a very important part of struggle and being a very important part of uh, what they were doing as part of their resistance. Mm-hmm. And that kind of connects with the diverse economies because diverse economies highlights this 
um, very, you know, the heterogeneous kind of nature of, of the broader economy. Yeah, and being in common is something that comes out of the diverse economies literature. And, uh, you know, alongside reading for difference, what diverse economies theorists, what we're really trying to express is how do we live well, right? How, because it's, again, modernization, like, like uh, as one of uh, the coffee roasters said to me, you know, we're not going to be driving around in Subarus. Like that whole planet isn't going to be doing that. That's just not. Uh, which was what the modernization theory would, would assume, right? Uh, but how do we live well together is, is, is really what undergirds the concept of being in common. And fair trade, I think, is an example or can be an example of the possibilities of being in common if there is dialogue, I guess, uh, about what, what that solidarity, what that being in common looks like. Mm-hmm. and how it can be practiced in a way that is effective for both parties. And I don't think the examples that I give in the book are quite there yet, right? Like there's still a lot of power and privilege on, on the consumer side and the roasting side of, of this particular uh, balancing act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what the conversations that I have with folks in this particular example, I think, are inspiring in terms of thinking about what being in common might look like in terms of how is it possible for us to lift each other up? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's kind of where I was. Uh, that's what I'm hinting at with that. And I think that uh, another scholar should should pick that up and run with it. <laughs> well, I think that's a nice way to kind of conclude the discussion of the book um, with this kind of hopeful idea. Um, and we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we end, can you tell me a little bit about what you are working on now? Oh yeah, uh, it's going to sound completely different, but I'm actually, I'm very proud to say I just signed a contract with the University of Georgia Press, actually, uh, for my second book. I, did, I didn't think I had a first book in me, and I, now I, I, I have a second. So uh, I am writing a book on feminist geographies of care uh, that is inspired by everything we've been going through over the last couple of years and what that might look like in the academy. So uh, I'm starting work on that now, and hopefully that will be out uh, in 2023. So okay. yeah, does that connect to your work on um, the neonatal intensive care? Uh, no, um, no. So, so yeah. maybe you can tell the listener a little bit about that. So how sure. does that how does that connect? Because so, I think there are obvious connections once you start actually like thinking about these two subjects. Yeah, I've been trying to think through care uh, again in a multiple way. Right, I'm really I'm very much. Uh, uh, interested in how we produce knowledge about things. And so the work that I've been doing in the neonatal intensive care unit, of course, not right now, but I was uh, over the last couple of years before the pandemic uh, uh, doing fieldwork in a NICU uh, is on thinking about how we access care and thinking about uh, what forms that care can take. And I recently, uh, with uh, my fabulous collaborator, uh, Abby Clark Sather, who is at the University of Minnesota uh, Duluth, uh, and who brought me into this research project uh, by the very simple uh, statement that milk is treated as medicine in the NICU, and that got me hooked. And so I've been working on, on this with her. Uh, and she's uh, her her piece of this is uh, looking at the practice of skin to skin care, which is called kangaroo care. Anyway, we just wrote a paper together that's trying to to talk about care in that particular space as multiple. And so yeah, I'm thinking about it um, from from that direction. But this is actually a complete departure from any of the field-based work that I've done. And it's just going to be a really theoretical deep dive into what a care 
full F-U-L-L academy might look like. Mm. So uh, I'm really, I'm throwing it out there as like a manifesto for the future of geography to some degree <laughs> about how can we create, and this is very much building on um, Vicki Lawson's, you know, how can we create a caring geography and Natalie Oswin's, you know, what would an, an other geography look like? So I am, uh, I don't think that I'm writing anything that people haven't thought about before, but I'm, I hope the way that I'm thinking about this particular book project is writing in a community of thinkers who have been talking about how we can make geography a more uh, inclusive and welcoming space and how we can fight for our discipline to make it uh, maintain its relevance uh, in the public eye. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about right now. And uh, I have not actually started to write the book. Hopefully my editor doesn't listen to this podcast, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm doing a lot of reading and thinking about it right now. And then, uh, and I know that we're short on time and I really appreciate you inviting me to talk about the book because uh, I was afraid that it was going to die of COVID coming out uh, in late 2019 as it did. It came out in December of 2019. And I thought, well, that, that was, that's, that's it. (laughs) So I'm really glad to talk about it. Uh, But I'm also doing work here uh, in Delaware uh, with the Lenny Lenape tribe and thinking about uh, their experiences of climate change and working with them on a freshwater mussels restoration project that uh, through a colleague, uh, John Cox, who's at the University of Delaware, got a grant to help do freshwater mussel restoration. So I'm starting to work on that. So uh, I'm trying to, knowing that I won't be able to do any international field work for a few years because of the way the vaccine rollout is happening. It's been really exciting to uh, to talk about some of these things in, in my own backyard. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm getting up to now. I'm writing about care and thinking about climate change and indigenous experiences. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to do this interview. Fair Trade Rebels is a fascinating book and I highly recommend it. Thanks. And um, the first two chapters are actually available to read for free on the University of Minnesota Press website right now. So thanks for adding that. Okay. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much, Renata. Okay. Bye-bye.